the Ephesians, chapter 2, beginning with verse 11, the word of the Lord. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself, being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows in a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. It's 10 o'clock on a Friday night. Your 8-year-old and 14-year-old sons have been at each other every day this week. And you feel like you've been managing a small war zone in your own home. One day, it was an argument about whose turn it was to clean out the cat's litter box. The next day, there was an explosion when your older child wanted your younger one to leave him and his friends alone and to get out of the older child's room. After that, there was a fight about how the younger child's favorite toy got broken and who did it or didn't do what. Tonight, you had to hound them to clean up the living room that loosely resembled the type of war zone you feel you've been in all week. It was arguments about what belonged to whom, who played it last, who brought it out to begin with, and who was going to be responsible to put it away before you fulfilled your promise to throw it in the garbage if it wasn't picked up in the next 30 seconds. You're sure that you've dealt with enough conflicts that you should have a Ph.D. in conflict resolution. The police should come to you when they need a master negotiator. But finally, it's quiet for the night, and you drift off into a much-needed sleep as you hope beyond all reason to be able to sleep at least until 8 o'clock in the morning on Saturday morning. It feels like you've been asleep for not more than 10 minutes when you are abruptly awoken at 7.30 by the sound of fighting in the kitchen over who gets to eat the last bowl of golden grams and who is left with the bowl of plain Cheerios or worse yet, the two-week-old box of shredded wheats. You roll your tired body to the edge of the bed and you stick your feet into your slippers. As you stumble down the hall and enter the conflict zone, also called the kitchen, you capture the gaze of your children with the infamous parental death stare. You know the look, the one that you've cultivated, you've honed, you've perfected it, 
every parent has through countless conflicts like the one you're dealing with now. It's the look that informs the children without words that whatever joy and happiness they have known in their short lives will momentarily be utterly forgotten as the parental unit brings a swift end to their conflict. You look at your children with your tractor beam-like stare that prevents them from being able to look away, and it happens. Like a well-trained reflex requiring no forethought or planning, you launch into that same speech that your own parents once addressed toward you and your siblings. You know that one day you are going to realize how much you love and need each other. You're going to regret these type of conflicts. I just don't understand why you two always have to be at each other. You're brothers, after all, part of the same family. And when you get older, you will see how important you are to one another and how much you need your family. You pause for a moment of silence to let what you said sink in. The problem is that your children interpret this pause in the action as a sign of entreaty by you for the explanation of the rationale for the conflict that they're currently having. It goes something like this. As your, oldest, your youngest pipes up, we were in watching cartoons and I told Johnny that I was hungry and was going to get some cereal. Well, he jumped up and ran into the kitchen and pushed me out of the way so he could grab the good cereal. I told him that I got there first and the golden grams were mine because I was there first. Well, Johnny proceeds to explain that he has only had one bowl of golden grams out of the box and that his younger brother, Andy, had two bowls just yesterday morning. So it belongs to him. Well, Andy says that yesterday doesn't count because he got to the cabinet first and he gets the first choice of the cereal that he wants. With Solomon-like wisdom, you address your children once more. Andy... You want golden grams? Uh-huh. Johnny, you want golden grams? Yeah. Well, do you know what I want for breakfast? <laughs> no, they answer in unison. Well, let me tell you, I want a big bowl of peace and quiet. See that you have either been in this situation before or can easily place yourself into a conflict like this. But lest you think that I was somehow spying on your family and your home, or my children think that I was giving an illustration about them, I present the disclaimer that this story, all names, characters, and incidents portrayed in this introduction are fictitious. No identification with actual persons, living or dead, families, parents, and children is intended or should be inferred. We all want peace. I mean, a parent wants it every day between their kids. They want peace in their own family. But it's incidents like this, it's conflicts like this, that show us, even in what we desire to be as the most close-knit community of your family, conflicts arise and peace is elusive. Perhaps over the last couple of weeks, you've been following on the news and felt the conflict and the turmoil surrounding the NFL and those who would kneel during the national anthem and those who desire it to be otherwise. And it seems as though there's no answer, there's no 
peace. Here in St. Louis, over the last several years, the conflict between race relations, the lack of peace, the desire for justice, all of it seems to point to the difficulty we have with gaining peace. But it points to the one thing that our hearts desire more than food, more than water, and that is peace in our lives. This morning, as we come to our passage, we will hear the story of two groups of people in the first century who, by all accounts, were those who harbored the most animosity towards one another. And yet, in this passage, in this turning point in the book of Acts, it is a beautiful story of how our God and our King brings peace between enemies. Acts chapter 10, we will read starting in chapter 25, but let me give you the run-up to those verses. Acts chapter 10 starts with the story of Cornelius. Cornelius is a Gentile. He is Gentile by birth. He is in the Roman army by vocation. He is a centurion, and he is a commander by position, a man who holds power. A man who very literally can hold the life of others in his hand and in his command. But Cornelius, we are told, is a God-fearing man who prays and who gives to the poor and to those who are needy. He and his family. And so God provides to Cornelius a miraculous vision of an angel. An angel who comes to him and says that that the prayers and the offerings that Cornelius has given have come up before the Lord as a memorial offering. offering. And so the angel tells Cornelius, I want you to call to a town called Joppa for a man named Simon who goes by the nickname of Peter and have him come. And so Cornelius immediately takes two of his servants and one of the trusted men under his command and he sends them to Joppa to find Peter. We are then told that on that following day, Peter was up on a roof praying and that he had a vision. That being in the Spirit, he saw let down from heaven a great sheet, as it were, held by its four corners. And inside that sheet were all manner of animals and birds of the air and lizards that crawl in the ground. And the Lord, or a voice came from heaven, which... Peter identifies as the Lord and says, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. And Peter says, Surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. And this happens three times. But after each time, the Lord says from heaven, Do not call unclean that which God has made clean. The next day, the messengers from from Cornelius arrive and they meet Peter and they go in and they have dinner with Peter and they stay overnight and the next day they leave. They leave for Caesarea where Cornelius was. And we pick up in verse 25 as Peter arrives at the home of Cornelius. We read, as Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. 
Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. And now may I ask what you sent me for? Cornelius answered, Four days ago I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has, been happen- what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. By us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. This passage is a pivotal turning point in the book of Acts because here we see, even though we had foreshadows in earlier chapters of the gospel being extended to those who were not ethnically Jews, here now God is doing something directly and uniquely with Gentiles. He is extending the gospel and initiating himself the communication about the truth of Christ and using Peter as as his instrument. But it's interesting as we look at this passage, who is this Gentile that he has appeared to by his angel? In the first century, there was an expectation of the Jews that God would come and that he would rescue them, the Messiah would come, and that he would overthrow the Roman rule that they had been living under. This Gentile Cornelius represented the very particular group of people that were used to enforce Roman rule on Jews in the first century. 
Cornelius, a centurion, working for his profession in the Roman army, was the last person that a Jew would have thought God would extend salvation to. Not only had they oppressed him, oppressed the Jews, but but Gentiles were unclean. In fact, as Peter recounts here, the common practice of the Jews was to make it a rule that they would not go in and eat with Gentiles and they would not even visit with them. Now, the Old Testament law didn't prevent that, but the Old Testament law did account for what we might call ceremonial cleanliness. And so to go in and to eat with a, Jew, eat with a Gentile for a Jew was actually to open themselves up to becoming ceremonially unclean unfit to worship. This was common knowledge. It was, it was common practice. Gentiles ate pork. They ate bacon. Right? Jews did not. They were set apart. They were separate. They were holy to God. For a Jew to enter into a close relationship or even a familial relationship with a Gentile would have been abhorrent. It would have signaled their own outcast from their society. And furthermore, they would have been colluding with the enemy that oppressed them. For a Gentile to associate with a Jew was just as bad. Here were these Jews who refused to worship as the Roman government required of them. They wanted to do something completely and utterly different. They always rebelled. They always were kicking at the pricks. They were bucking the system. They wanted it to be their way or no way. How intolerant, how single-minded these Jews were. But because of that very thing, because of their stubbornness, the Roman government had to relinquish and make a caveat for these ignorant Jews from the back country. They had to allow them to worship their God as long as they prayed for the Roman emperor, even though they didn't worship the Roman emperor. For a Gentile to also pursue a new religion in the first century. This new thing that was coming into existence, Christianity, was also scandalous. You see, the one thing that Romans didn't like was new religions. If it was old, if it had history, if they could correlate it to something that they already believed, it was okay. But as soon as it was new on the scenes, there was a problem. It introduced conflict within a society for all these new things to come about. And so to maintain peace, to maintain order, they suppressed it. There are themes of this, this conflict, this strife, this lack of peace that run through our lives each and every day. And in our lives, we so desire that peace. And we try so many different ways to obtain that peace. But like 
the Jews and the Gentiles in the first century, it seems elusive. It seems like it's not possible. As we come to this passage, let us consider three aspects. First, let us consider our own attempts to secure peace. Let us consider our affliction that prevents peace. And let us consider God's actions that restore peace. We thirst after peace like we thirst after water. And we try lots of different ways to obtain that peace. We see it both in international relationships, we see it in our home, we see it in our everyday friendships. That there are different methodologies or mechanisms that we try to use. One that's very common, and I think you probably will recognize this because we are currently leveraging it against a country called North Korea. It's called peace through threat of force. See, the idea behind it is is that if you can show someone that it is worse for them to pursue their path and prevent peace than it is for them to yield to you, then you have gained peace, albeit through fear. Fear of retribution or coercion. But it's not really peace. You can threaten someone with force like, like a bully on a playground. And the young kid who doesn't want to get beat up can relinquish and do what the older kid wants him to do. He may even act like he likes that other kid. But in his heart, in his heart, there is no love for that other boy on the playground. You see, it is a surface piece. It's not a piece that's thoroughgoing that goes deep down into our hearts and provides what we really long for. Yes, it changes how we act. It changes the decisions that we make. Sometimes we see it in our own home. The relationship between a parent and a child. They want peace so bad in their home. They want the conflict to end so desperately between their children that they threaten them. They threaten them with punishment. Not discipline to train them and teach them how to have peace, but they threaten that they will receive the punishment to enforce peace. We see it in spousal relationships. The way husbands and wives treat one another. Perhaps one is dealing with great anxiety because of the hurt and the pain that they've had in their past of people who have hurt them in deep and desperately difficult ways. And to prevent that, they attempt to manipulate, sometimes through force, sometimes through physical abuse, to try to get that other person to do what they want so that their fears can be satiated. Another way that we try to gain peace is through reason, or through education, through information. Now, now don't don't mishear what I'm saying. Reason, education, information, those are all good. But so often, when we come to conflict, what we say is, if we just educate people, if we just give them more information... That will change how they act. That will change the way that they behave, and we will go from a state of conflict to a state of peace. And yet, every day around us, 
We are inundated with more information than we have ever had in the history of humanity at our fingertips through our smartphones. Education is readily accessible in this country and around the world. And yet in those very same countries where education flourishes, where information is free, there is conflict. Because just having more information doesn't change your heart. In fact, to think that education or information can bring peace is actually a failure to acknowledge the insufficiency of information and the need for a heart change. You know, sometimes reason is used in relationships to manipulate others into peace. It's abused. Sometimes we, we, can, we can approach this from the perspective of if we can't gain peace by informing another person, then, then we have to write them off as being ignorant or having a low IQ or not being able to grasp this. And then, while there may be an appearance of peace, really all we've done is we've distanced ourselves from the very people that we want peace with. We've set them aside. we put them on the shelf. We've ignored them. The third way that we often strive for peace is through acceptance. We, we hear the term love. Peace through love. Love one another. And it sounds good. I mean, it's, it's, it's the thing that in our ears, we're like, yeah, yeah, that's it. Accept everyone. But, but the problem is within that, within the construct of our current and our society and postmodernism, it, it loses all concept of what peace really is. Because we accept everyone for everything. And when there is someone who doesn't want to accept another person, who stands with conviction, then they must be rejected because they are not accepting others. Those who want to do things that we consider unloving, if we have to accept everything, what is the basis upon which we can say that is unloving or that an action is loving? But when acceptance doesn't work, we always fall back to reason. I'll convince them. And when reason doesn't work, we often fall back to threat of force. To get our way, to gain peace. The problem is, is that there is an inability that we have to secure peace for ourselves. Though we attempt it, though we desire it, there is an inability. Because as we strive for peace through these different methods and we actually draw boundaries between us and them... It destroys the very peace that we are after. The very things that we want to draw us together oftentimes separate us from other people. Because we see, or we come to see it as an us-them proposition. That we are in the right and they are in the wrong. And at some point, if we can't convince them to come to our side, then we have to alienate them. We have to reject them. We have to push them aside so that we can have some type of peace in our own life. The problem is, is that our whole concept of us and them is skewed. We look at it as the right and the wrong. We look at it as the good and the bad. Those striving for peace, those trying to keep us from gaining peace. 
But the reality is, is the distance between us and the people that are our enemies or that we are in conflict with, that distance is infinitely smaller than the distance between us and a holy God. We oftentimes want to think that God is on our side, that we are closer to Him, that the way that we're trying to pursue peace, what we're trying to gain, is, is the way that God wants us to act, the way that He is pursuing peace as well. And we fail to consider that there is a great gulf, there is a horrible condition that separates us from God. And that even as we strive for peace, it's the very affliction that prevents the peace in our life because of our separation from God. We see that in this passage here, as Peter is having the conversation with Cornelius, and he makes the comment that he has, he has come to understand, he has now seen the truth that he should not call any man clean or unclean. How did he come to that conclusion? When the sheet was lowered down and God offered for him to eat it, right? There were unclean animals in there. If he had taken and eat it, he would have eaten, he would have been made ceremonially unclean. He would not have been able to go to the temple to worship. His relationship um, to God in a ceremonial fashion had been abruptly broken. And he would have to have gone through the rituals for cleansing. And yet God says, what I have made clean, don't call unclean. It's a radical reorientation of what Peter had come to understand. What he had come to see. But if something is made clean then it must have started unclean. There's a transition here. And it's a transition that we all must go through. It's the problem that we all have. You see, God has made these animals clean, and this is representative of what is true about us as individuals. The reason God had given the ceremonial laws about cleanliness was not to say, this is how you earn my favor, but it was to show Israel and all of humanity that there was a fundamental problem with our uncleanness. That when we approach God, we cannot come with the sin that is in our lives because He is a holy and a good God. He cannot tolerate sin. That seems harsh. But let me ask you to imagine with me, if you will, a paradise. Everything that you need everything that you could want, created perfectly good. And the person who rules over this paradise says, you can enter into this paradise and participate in all the goodness that is here, but you can't bring in disease from the outside. If you bring in one uncleanness into my paradise, it will destroy it all. Imagine the seriousness of typhoid in this first part of this last century because we get an idea of what what that might be like. There was a lady named Mary Milan who eventually became known as Typhoid Mary. Typhus is a fever and a disease that can come on and can very easily kill if not treated properly. 
in the turn of the century, around 1900, 1907, there were outbreaks across the United States. And there was a particular outbreak through a series of families, and one family had an outbreak of typhoid and brought in an outside investigator to try to determine how did it get into their household. This investigator questioned all of the people in the household, and upon further investigation, came to be very interested in Mary Milan, who was the cook for the family. A wealthy family, they were able to employ her at a good wage, and so she was happy to be there cooking for them. But as it was investigated into her past, they found that she had a history of changing employers. And that every previous employer that she had had for a number of years, shortly after she came, the household had come down with typhoid fever. People had gotten sick, and people had died. Mary was the first asymptomatic carrier of the infection that causes typhoid. She herself had no outward symptoms. She wasn't sick, but what she carried with her killed other people. She was taken into custody and placed into permanent isolation. There was a lawsuit that was filed, and eventually she was released, and she went back to being a cook. But during the time that she was in isolation, she was told, you have this disease, and if you go back to being a cook, other people will get sick and other people will die. And the health department banned her from being a cook and from going back into that career. However, once she left, she changed her name to a new alias and found employment as a cook again. And that family got sick and several died. And so she left and she moved on to the next family. And that family got sick and a few died. Eventually they caught back up with Mary and they, they took her back into custody and unfortunately she remained in isolated confinement for 30 years. People looking at it were horrified that someone who had been told that they have a disease which will kill others which will do such damage and such harm, would deny that they had that disease, and in fact would take actions that disregarded the well-being and the welfare for others. The seriousness of her disease was not taken into account. So often in our own lives, when we are told that we have an affliction, that we have a problem of sin, we look at ourselves and we say, well, I think I look okay. I don't feel bad. I'm a pretty good person. I give to the poor. I do all of these good things. I volunteer. I think I'm all right. You must be mistaken. And yet, in the wake of our life, the damage and destruction caused to relationships, the peace that we destroy because we come into contact with other people, And the sin that is in our heart manifests itself through selfishness, through greed, through lack of care and concern for others. We're like typhoid Mary, wreaking havoc 
with people all around us and yet denying the real root of our problem. The real reason why peace can't exist is because there is no peace in our heart. There is only sin. It sounds... It sounds horrible. Hopeless. Hopeless without a possibility of peace. If this seriousness, if this disease that we have wreaks havoc, if it prevents peace peace in our lives, if it, if it separates us from others and, and draws distinctions and, and disregards them, then what hope is there? How do we gain peace? The peace comes through God's initiation. There is hope. There is peace that we can know. In this passage, while there is a Jew and a Gentile who ought to, by all considered involved with this, be at one another's throat or be rejecting one another, here we find that God has initiated something which is able to bring them together and bring peace to a relationship that would seem hopeless. God has initiated. God has taken action. While we in and of ourselves may see that it is hopeless, God has brought hope. In fact, we read what Peter has said, that God himself sent a message to the people of Israel telling the good news of peace. It is the Father who has compassion. It is the Father who sends the message of peace because he has a heart that desires peace for his people and for his creation. God is not a distant God who is disconcerned or ignoring what's going on on this planet. Even though there is so much conflict, even though in our own city there is such a lack of peace, God is concerned. God is watching. And God did something. The Father did something that is radical. He bridged the divide between us and Him and sent us the message of peace. Not a message that just says peace is possible, but a message that says peace is real and is coming into a broken creation. How did He do this? He did this, He sent this message first of all to Peter by declaring that He had made that which was unclean clean. He had radically reoriented the relationship that Jews had with Gentiles. In fact, the Gentiles who, as we read in Ephesians, were separate from God's promises, now are being included in them. Those who were not a people are now being made a people. Those who were a tribe against which another tribe had fought against, now both tribes were being brought peace and being brought into a relationship together under that one covenant. They were made clean. Peter makes the declaration that now he gets it. He has seen God working in Cornelius. He has seen the fruit of God's work in Cornelius' life. And he says, now I get it. God actually doesn't show favoritism. God doesn't make the same distinctions that we do. God doesn't create tribalism that is so natural to us in our own hearts. God looks at all 
of his all of the people of earth and has compassion viewing them all as equally in need of his salvation and it's not of us this is god's action imagine a boat a cruise liner luxurious traveling across the atlantic ocean maybe to cape horn long trip and somewhere along the way a storm arises and the boat sinks and so they begin to launch out all the rescue boats all the life rafts and into one life raft goes a man and his wife who are extremely wealthy they were in first class they had their own suite they had servants to come provide them with all the things that they needed they were wealthy in their normal everyday life they had everything their heart could desire but now they were in a life raft in the middle of the ocean and into the same life raft comes a steward a servant from the ship he lives down in the hull of the ship and doesn't have a window to look out of he makes a meager salary by all outward appearances he is no success and nothing of consequence but into the lifeboat he goes for days they drift they drift on this ocean the sun beating down baking them and the only thing they can think of is how do we get out a few more days go by the emergency rations are gone a few more days go by what little bit of water they had left really was inconsequential and they knew that they were destined for death they were as good as dead and then one morning in the distance is a horn of a ship passing by and this ship comes closer and closer and closer and the ship comes in range of the little lifeboat and clearly they see them because the ship veers towards the lifeboat and pulls up alongside of them and lets down a net and pulls the people in the life raft up onto the ship and saves their lives how foolish would it be for the rich man to look at the other one and say look how good i am that's why we were saved no the reason that they were saved the reason the rich man and the poor man were saved is because they were both in the same life raft because they both needed salvation that is how god looks upon us there is no greater or lesser in humanity there are only those who need god's compassion and so he sent the message of peace and of compassion to them not only does the father have compassion and not show favoritism but it is christ jesus who exchanges wrath for peace here in this passage we see that there is a judgment to come and that christ is to be the judge but there is another message after it that says that all who believe in christ receive forgiveness of their sins through his name there is an exchange of the wrath of the punishment that we deserve for our sins for the righteousness and the favors the favoritism if we might use that term the the place and position of christ as god's child as his only son christ relinquished 
his own standing and took upon himself the wrath of God. How, how is peace brought? When we were enemies with Christ, he gave up his place for ours and put us into good standing with his Father. There is a great exchange. Our unworthiness, our uncleanness for Christ's cleanness. There is also within this passage, not merely the compassion of the Father, the actions He took in bringing the message of peace, not only the actions of Christ in exchanging the wrath that we deserve for the peace of the relationship with His Father, but there is also the actions of the Holy Spirit that empowers peace in our lives and in our world. When the time of Peter's arrival had come and he had spoken the words, it says that while he was yet speaking, the Holy Spirit came on all those who heard the message and that the circumcised believers, namely the Jews, were astonished that the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was the personification of God himself and the power that goes out from him. In the New Testament, we understand that the Holy Spirit is a unique person in the Godhead. And that this person has such power that when he sets to do something, he will not be stopped. When God set to bring peace between Jews and Gentiles, between enemies, he employed the power of the Holy Spirit to ensure that it would succeed. In our own lives, when we come to Christ, when we place our faith in Him, the Holy Spirit also indwells us. That's so necessary because peace, real true peace, is not something that we can attain of our own. In fact, it's impossible. We must have the power of the Holy Spirit to do it through us, to overcome our selfishness, our greed, to overcome the distinctions that we make, the way we look down on others, our own self-righteousness and pride. But when the power of the Holy Spirit does come, there is a peace that is beautiful. In Boko, or excuse me, in Nigeria, Hassan John, who is a pastor in the Anglican Church, was pla- had a bounty placed on his head by the Muslim extremist group Boko Haram. The bounty was about eight hundred American dollars. And he would go to his church each and every day, not knowing whether someone would murder him in order to claim the price on his head. But as the conflict and the strife in that region continued to escalate, he would see the violence and the bloodshed occurring there. He'd seen friends that had been shot, injured in front of his eyes. As a part-time reporter for CNN, he would often rush to the scene immediately after bombings, and has narrowly escaped death himself. And he says, you see it again and again. You get to the place where a bomb has just exploded. There are bodies all over the place. You visit people in the hospital. You go back and meet families. You cry with them. You console them. You do the best you can with them all the time. But this violence and hatred has not stopped him from reaching out to Muslim neighbors who need Christ. See, after he helped a small Muslim girl who had not gone to school for quite some time because she couldn't pay the fines, her father had been killed 
he started to reach out and help her. After helping her, he reached out to other orphans. Soon he was helping 12 Muslim women, then 120. Young Muslim men in the area were starting to ask if they could find help as well. Hassan's evangelistic outreach involves eating meals with Muslims. In fact, he says that now in Nigeria, eating with someone is a big thing. You don't eat with your enemy because you're afraid you'll be poisoned. But now, in an attempt to share the gospel, Christians build friendships with Muslims and sit down and break bread. It's so marvelous. Enemies who have done us harm, those who are not like us, those with whom we have conflict, it seems as though there is no hope for peace, but there is peace. There is peace possible. It involves us recognizing that we are in the same boat as they are that all of us need the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, and that that forgiveness has come. A God with a compassionate heart has reached out. He has given us His Spirit who empowers us to be able to do the impossible, and that is to love others as Christ has loved us. Dr. Phillips is a seminary professor and a pastor. And his son was murdered. While working in a convenience store, three men came in, took the money from the cash register, and when they were unable to get the safe open, the third man shot his son once in the chest and ended his life. Dr. Phillips talks about struggling a lack of peace in his own life, both because his son is dead, but also over this one man who had murdered his son. And he said after some time, he was able to finally write a letter to the man in prison and talk to him and ask him how he was. And the young man wrote back and said, I am so sorry for your loss and grief. And yes, I need your help. And so Pastor Phillips wrote back to him, a letter of love and of concern. His desire for the good of that man who killed his son. And the reason that Dr. Phillips gives for being able to do that was because he saw God revealed to him and made known to him his own need of forgiveness. That in the same way the man needed his forgiveness for murdering his son, he needed the father's forgiveness for his murder of Christ through his sins. And he said, once I realized that, the Spirit gave strength and power to be able to forgive, to be able to restore peace. And he says, one day I hope that this young man and my son will be in heaven together and they will hug one another in the peace of Christ. Christ has come to bring peace And it is real, and it is true, and it is yours. Let us pray. Father, we are broken.